Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Dr. Lizelle DeVee, who is a clinical psychologist in private practice. Her work includes topics such as adult psychotherapy, bereavement and loss, corporate assessments, infertility, LGBTI work, mood disorders, NLP life coaching, trauma, and women's reproductive health. Those are incredibly impactful issues. Those are indeed. Thank you so much for having me and for inviting me. Welcome to the show and compliments of the new year. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> this is our first live show of, of 2024. And uh, over the holiday season, I was observing various relationships between families, friends, social media, uh, interactions with, with individuals, and also how different shades of a person's identity show up according to who they interact with. And generally speaking, people engage with other people on a daily basis, whether that's physical or virtual. And being able to have healthy engagements is so important. Yet, as I was reflecting, we've never really been given a, a kind of real toolkit. It's mostly by trial and error as we navigate different personalities and, and ourselves. What are some of your views? Um. I think that's really a fascinating question to start off with because relationships in and of itself are so fundamental to most human interactions, you know, um, and therefore we can't think of relationships as only being limited to being ideas in relation to romantic relationships. The moment we exchange any form of interaction, it probably is rooted in some type of a relation relationship or relational interaction so building on what you said we definitely don't necessarily we're not placed into this world with a standard toolkit or a toolbox in terms of how to navigate those because of the complexity you know of relationships we engage with people in our personal spaces in our uh, intimate romantic spaces in workspaces so you can't really make blanket statements or guidelines necessarily to in, in terms of how to to uh, it, it, to navigate around those but typically speaking i think if you were to to narrow it down to two broad categories those would would typically be i think in my humble opinion around um uh, work type relationships uh, family, familial relationships, and then I, I would say, broadly speaking, also romantic partner relationships. Um, I often feel, and maybe this is an implicit in what I've seen a lot or coming out of the festive season or even around the time as we started rounding up or winding up 2023, is that oftentimes people suffered from fatigue and where you would see that fatigue is manifested in, unfortunately, family type of interactions because we project our best selves within the context of work we we put on the mask proverbially speaking or the facade um because to a large extent it's expected of us but then the people that are ironically closest to us they bear the brunt of, of our real true selves because then when you drive into the front gate you kind of leave the ceo-ness of of the self behind and now people at home your real loved ones your significant others are actually the ones that get sometimes unfortunately the raw end of the stick so um in that respect i found that i've had to do a lot of work around just alerting 
you know, my, my patients around that. And maybe uh, I would say instilling a sense of putting the same effort into family home type of interactions as they would in your professional context or your professional environment. And that's so true, because at the end of the day, family and familial relationships and friendships are probably what count a whole lot more than your work interactions. I mean, ironically, you cannot actually separate the two. They exist on the same continuum, just maybe uh, occupy different parts of it. And the reason why I'm saying that ironically is because the irony in that is an actual fact for us to be our best productive selves, things have to be relatively intact at home. And I would say vice versa. So the two actually feed into one another in, in uh, you know, in many respects. Um, it's just that um, there's often an expectation to perform in a certain way in the one, in, in the one you know, um, end of that spectrum. At the same time, I also noticed that um, COVID has had a lot to do with how people experience themselves in the working environment where there has been a lack of breakdown of workspace personal boundaries. So for many people, your personal workspace, your bedroom space has become your, your office space. And so there's not actually that time to de-roll and, and, and leave and, and, and place a boundary between who you've been for the past consecutive eight or six hours in your working role versus who you're about to be when you need to put the kids to bed or prepare dinner or whatever the case might be. So COVID has actually pay, played a, quite a significant role in either delineating that space or having those boundaries completely be non-existent. It's so interesting as you, you're talking, I'm thinking about this and how I've responded and reflected in, in my own behavior. With this aspect of delineation or putting on a different persona because of the way you're changing and the next environment that you're going into. What are some of the, the the tools that you can suggest for people to better navigate the, the transition? Mm. Well, in an ideal world, we would all walk around being completely and utterly self-aware, mindful individuals. Um, but of course, that isn't necessarily the case. So um, I, I'm, I hope that I'm able to answer your question by saying that uh, despite that, I still think it starts with some level of awareness and often we achieve awareness by virtue of feedback from those around us, you know, our significant others. And that does extend to to um, employee type relationships as well, or maybe extended, like uh, I'd say maybe acquaintances or so. So I think that goes a long way to open yourself up and to be, uh, willing to receive some type of interpersonal feedback would be the first starting point. And then from there also, you mean, I mean, we all can live in a place in a space of awareness for, for, uh, you know, infinity, but the real work starts with actually doing something about that work, you know, so implementing the feedback that you have uh, with, with um, willful intent almost, you know, so willfully like now, ironically, we've just gone into a new year, into a new season. And so often January uh, provides opportunity for people to go into their reflective selves. But what are you actually going to do? So are those intentions existing only on an ideas level in theory, or are you actually going to go out and practice it? Yeah. So to summarize, I think for me, it's all about actually, 
you know, the implication of something rather than just the airy fairy talk about it or the application rather. Yes. I read a Forbes article where they were talking about different types of New Year's resolutions and that many people kind of uh, put together self-improvement resolutions, whether it's about living healthier, going to gym, eating better, getting happy, losing weight, etc. But shockingly, only 8% of people are able to achieve their resolutions. And I also think that you know, when you're talking about this as putting out your intent, what are you going to do about it? What do you think are some of the reasons, first of all, that people fail at fulfilling their resolutions? I think first and foremost, because a re resolution will remain exactly that for as long as you're not actually putting in the effort to resolve that idea or that plan or that beautiful fantasy and to actually materialize it in real time, you know? And, and I do think as we change seasons, uh, as we go from one year into another, uh, part of human nature is often to go into that reflective space because it offers an opportunity to, you know, spend some time um, doing a little bit of stock taking around how, uh, to what extent you've you've manifested your dreams or whatever your ideals would have been for uh, you know from the previous season, but unless you actually put it into actual effort, it remains exactly that mm -hmm. until the next opportunity arises to do a check in again and to see well how many of these boxes can I actually tick. So I think it often boils down to a gap between what we say we want to do and what we are actually able to achieve. Yeah. So meeting those expectations and putting a putting a structured plan into place. I think that's that's probably one of the the, the core elements. With us being routine a, and structure. Perfect. Can you expand on that as, as well? Because you've got a better perspective the, than I have. I know I can talk about common elements, but you are the expert here. So we've got routine, we've got structure, we've got vision. Mm. Um, I think broadly speaking, oftentimes people actually underestimate the value or, yeah, I want to say actually the value that they can um, extract from um, having themselves be guided by some form of routine. And actually it offers a lot of safety. You know, when you look at children, um, they often function very well around the predictability of things. So if you go into a day or a week and there's some type of a rough guideline as to what to expect when, it often gives a sense of surety and it calms the nerves. <laughs> it offers a little bit of peace of mind if you know what, what you can expect next. And the same applies often to adults. You know, I sometimes find myself having very baseline conversations with with because um, I do a, a quite an extensive uh, extensive amount of work with um, patients who, who battle with substance abuse, and oftentimes one of the core fundamental things is a lack of structure, you know, around just very basic day to day routines. And as basic as this conversation sounds, I, I'm often pleasantly surprised about the value, emotional value, and the psychological value people reinvest into their lives if they just apply some form of routine wow. so yeah that's one of many things mm. I think that's uh it, it's simple and um anyone really should be able to to put that in into effect 
You mentioned substance abuse as being one of the areas that that you address. What would you say are two of the most common issues that that women present to you? Um, women in the context of substance abuse, or, or not in, necessarily in general. So just thinking, because obviously we're a gender based program, and thinking mm. about some of the issues that are common. Uh, to, to a lot of women, whether that's substance abuse, whether it is uh, coping with living a multifunctional life. Uh, so just thinking about some of those common points that we can maybe raise as a, as a discussion. So I think sometimes we see mental health complications or impacts as a result of the stressors of day-to-day living on modern day women. You know, so because ironically, even though we have all of this beautiful um, legislation in the context of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, materially it doesn't actually manifest in that way. So whilst women now have all these progressive things that enable them to do things on on an, on a ground level, they cannot actually achieve all of those. So with the with the provision for them now to be able to go out and also be breadwinners, simultaneously society expects them to be the good breadwinner in those cases, but also be the nurturing mom at home. So somewhere in the middle between all of that comes a whole lot of stress and pressure on the individual self. And often we see that manifesting in things like clinical depression, clinical anxiety, trauma, um, and often, unfortunately, in worst case scenarios, reliance on 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 severe on 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 substances, anything ranging from you know really serious substances to, for example, over the counter maybe overuse of prescribed medication or alcohol. It's a it's a sobering thought, really, on on thinking about these dynamics where we want to do things for ourselves, have the best of both, achieve and deliver in our respective facets of life and also fulfill expectations of of others and when we don't we have uh, poor coping mechanisms given what you know and your and your professional expertise mm-hmm. could you share perhaps your top 3 mental health tips for women to better navigate their worlds um all right i'm going to have to apply my mind to that one a little bit. Um, I'd say what comes to mind for me firstly is a very huge expectations of ourselves and many of the boundaries that we think we have are actually quite permeable. So when we think of ourselves as breadwinners uh, or providers, as well as uh, uh, individuals that are capable of of doing the whole nurturing thing simultaneously, uh, as well as being capable of being spiritual selves or investing in the self, we often f- find that I, I, f- I see it in, in clinical practice that those ideas are often very permeable. And one of the many parts people think that they can hold quite easily are in the process often neglected, but they often realize it very late, very late into the process when we are already at the level of experiencing a clinical manifestation of anxiety or a clinical uh, picture of suicide. So to come back to your question, to put it simply, have solid boundaries um, around self-care, 
and around prioritizing yourself, you know, also amidst all the other responsibilities that you have as female individuals. We live in a society where implicit in being female, a lot is expected, you know, a lot is expected. Um, and unfortunately, those expectations are complicated by societal expectations, I think to some extent, um, uh, normative stuff, religious, all of those layers coexist to create those expectations that are quite automatically placed on the female body simply by virtue of being female. So to survive this in the 2024 era, I would say have very explicit boundaries around what you are capable of doing and what you can clearly identify as non-negotiable or possibly impossible to achieve at a particular moment in time. Second to that, I would also say have, have goals that are very uh, firmly entrenched in something that is realistic. So if you're going to have goals that you place for yourself, um, time them appropriately, place them in such a moment in time that is doable so that you don't get yourself into a place or a state of anxiety unnecessarily because you've put simply placed too much pressure on yourself. So there's that. And I think lastly, the one that comes to mind for me is probably a little bit simplistic, but often in the midst of being, you know, living very pressured and rushed lives, we often forget to just really pause and just appreciate um, little mundane things in real time. I've just had um, the, the privilege of just taking a quick two days out just to recuperate and rejuvenate a little bit. And in doing so, I often realize, or I realize how we take little mundane things for granted. Just the value of being able to walk up the stairs. It takes for me to, to interact, for example, with my long-term orthopedic pa patients that are, that are uh, locked down to a bed for weeks and months on end to realize, hey, before I'm going to complain about being tired for having walked up and down the stairs, maybe I should be grateful. So um, it, it boils down to really just appreciating, appreciating those little mundane things and being in the moment, not necessarily always goal orientated, but appreciating the moment that presents itself. I think those are really valuable. So setting your boundaries, being quite solid about what those are, taking time out for your own self-care, setting realistic goals and taking time out when you need to. Tying into this is that I find that a lot of women don't know when to say no. They just say yes, 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 and they carry on. So at what point um, do they need to seek professional help and come to somebody like you and go, you know what, um, this is a situation. And because a lot of people just don't ask for help, they carry on and they carry on thinking that they've got their own coping mechanisms, but actually they, they don't and they're falling apart. And oftentimes by the time they get to somebody like myself, it's already at that point when it's too late because there's already been what we call a parasuicide attempt, an attempt at taking one's life, um, or uh, a clinical form of depression has already uh, manifested. Um, 
So unfortunately, that realization sometimes comes too late and often at the time when the person has already reached oftentimes burnout, you know. So, um, you know, I think it goes back in part to what I said a few moments ago when when I said implicit in being a female, there's already certain um, expectations that you inherit purely on the basis of being a female. And either you are lucky enough to being to be in a family or neighborhood or religious context or environment to go against those expectations and say, no, this is what I'm willing to onboard on my plate. I cannot actually do all of this. Or you're going to go with the flow and, and, and X, Y, and Z, but I can't do the rest. Um, it's also up to, uh, up to the individual person themselves to be able to take ownership for what they can and cannot do. Because the irony in that is before you can be the team at, team leader or the manager or the group leader or this or that or whatever, you cannot physically show up for any of those if you yourself are not uh, energized enough to be able to do that. If I had to use the analogy of an ATM um, from which we often do withdrawals, you, you cannot run. You, eventually, that ATM is going to run dry. So you need to deposit into that ATM equally to be able to provide for all of those transactions that are likely to <laughs> go through that machine. So central to that, Saying no is doesn't come naturally for most people. I'm not going to lie. And what I, I sometimes would do in the context of doing therapeutic work with patients, as I would quite literally practice with them. I would role play scenarios and say, okay, so here's the situation. Let us literally have this conversation now and see if we can brainstorm how you're going to react to this potential response or that or the other. And mm. I often find that helpful. I love that analogy of, of the ATM. It's just so true. Absolutely. <laughs> You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity. And today we're talking to Dr. Lizelle DeVee, who is a clinical psychologist in private practice. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. DeVee, casting your mind back uh, a, a few years, what made you become a psychologist? What, what were some of the factors that paved this decision and, and career path? If your listeners could see my facial expression, they would see me smiling right now. Um, I actually was well on my way into the accounting field. In actual fact, I was doing managerial accounting uh, in my second year of university studies already. And then I was unfortunately involved in a car accident with my grandfather. And I was fortunate enough to have walked out of that experience relatively unscathed. Um, and it put me really, really into a reflective space and made me really re-interrogate almost um, the, the area and the direction that what my life, I felt at that stage, was about to head into. So lo and behold, the next year, once I was done healing and recovering, I came back and I re-registered. So I literally went from being a second-year student back to being one. And, and then I started the, 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 the journey because that's actually what it is. It's a journey towards becoming a clinical psychologist and I haven't looked back. However, it, it was quite an eventful and long project, projected uh, journey. Anybody that's ever been interested in psychology or envisions themselves to go into that field would know that it's at the very least a master's degree that's required of you. 
And it's also not one that necessarily guarantees that you will be selected because to register as a psychologist, you have to be selected. Interesting. And because a lot of our audience are students, what are some of the processes there? Okay, so I'll just expand on that a little bit. Um, training as a professional psychologist starts realistically only on master's level. Anything before that, you are not regarded a, a registered psychologist just yet. Over the last few years, however, the Health Professions Council of South Africa has started promulgating different registration categories so people can now exit with an honours degree and become a registered counsellor. But to become a psychologist, you have to go all the way and complete a master's and do a dissertation. And then subsequent to that, like I'm I'm a clinical psychologist. So in addition to that, I also had to do internship training as well as community service training like a med medical doctor would. And then you write board exams. And only if you then pass the board exams are you then considered to be a, you know, a registered practitioner. Time frame? Time frame, we're talking about, sorry, I have to count now, Amelia. Uh, undergrad honours. So, master's process, roughly six years. Okay. If I include everything, including the internship. And then, I mean, PhD, it's a whole different conversation all on, on its own as a, as a clinical psychologist. But that was my personal decision. That was my choice, my journey. I, I had always wanted to pursue it. And that took another, in all honesty, probably four and a half to five years of my life. So it's, it's a 10-year journey, in, in effect, of having this decision. And then uh, it, it's an investment, massive investment. Massive investment that requires a lot of discipline, uh, many opportunities that life throws your way to want to cop out. You've got to redirect and and really commit. It's a commitment as well, you know. So, um, but coming back to the requirements, Amalia, the reality is, uh, I always say to students because at some point in time I did work in the context of higher education as well. Um, I used to lecture at UJ um, a few years ago, and so often. Um, students don't know that it is an actual selection-based career path. So you have to have a plan B or potentially C as well in the event that you do not get selected on master's level. And remember, I said training only starts on master's, professional training only starts yeah. on master's level. But to get to that point, you have to be selected first. But in everything that you say, uh, the reassurance that one has is that you have been selected. So thinking in the eyes of a patient that this isn't a, a fly-by-night career and that you are seeing people who have the credentials who can help you because that's that's what you do. You really help people. 100%. Um, and that's actually a beautiful way of thinking about it. It's um, from the perspective of a patient that has the opportunity to work with somebody that has gone through all of that. You know, you really can rest assured that you are, or you should be rather than capable hands, you know. So you went into private practice. You've also, obviously, you've done your, your internship, you've done your community service. Can I ask you, from your point of view, have there been any obstacles that you've experienced by virtue of being a woman? Oh, many. Um, 
and unfortunately all the time. Um, I entered psychology um, at a time frame where very few colored women like myself were actually in professional training. Um, and I remember in my earlier years, initially when I got selected, I often walked around with this kind of like um, questioning the halo that I thought I had around my head, whether I was just um, selected on the basis of uh, e-employment um, e e equity or whatever criteria. So that haunted me for the first few months until I had to reconcile the reality that actually when I applied, I applied at that stage to 14 or 15 universities in total, and all of them accepted me for interviews. So I had to remind myself that clearly all of them must have seen something in my potential to have taken me to that level. I took the decision to go with UJ because they just scheduled the interview process first before any other university in the country. And it, it, it's an emotionally daunting process. So because I got selected, I just thought, oh, I'm not putting myself through another <laughs> process like this. But coming back to your question, in current times, definitely. Um, challenges on the basis of, of being a woman. Um, also, um, like I said, uh, being a psychologist of color, um, colored women are, are, are typically very underrepresented in my field. And I would often come across patient populations that would A, question my qualifications, and also, I don't know if they think I'm very young, but then quite literally would would raise concerns about whether I'm really qualified enough with my age and this. Um, so the combination of those two have, have in some instances been quite interesting, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and how did you overcome them to get past those judgments? Or did you just say, okay, I'm not the person for you to see? I've learned over time to really choose my battles wisely, you know, in some instances where I thought it was it, it was necessary for me to go in to the scenario and rationalize uh, my placement in the space, I would. But at other times when I thought, I mean, I had one incident that was quite so interesting where um, a, a set of parents retrospectively questioned my qualifications and I welcomed them and I said, you're welcome to contact the HPCSO if you don't believe. Uh, but it's funny that during the process, you had no questions or anything about my credentials, but retrospectively you do. So having said that, please, here's the, the number for the, the, the professional board. Uh, you're welcome to go and ask them. So um, this is probably a profession that currently is starting to look different in the South African context. It's more racially, racially representative in current times. But I don't think we've hit the nail yet in, in as far as gender representation goes. Incidentally, psychology is quite a profession that seems to be more uh, preferred by female students as opposed to males. But um, I have to say this in particular, as a colored lady, I don't see enough of my you know, own ethnic group represented there yet. And I'm hoping that um, over time, the bar of consciousness will be raised because it's so applicable to plow back with relevant information and contextual information in your own community. As you were talking, I was having some flashbacks to a few of my other conversations. So for instance, um, a doctor in urology and male patients coming and going, have I got the right room? 
um, judges were when they were lawyers and people would knock on the door, open the door and literally close the door because their whole expectation was that they were going to be seeing a, a man. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Dr. Debit, we are unfortunately running out of time. And one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up that you feel have contributed towards your success. Um, I, um, I remember that moment when I walked across the stage, when I graduated, um, I had, I had lifted my arm like this. I I don't know what, much like a power fist moment that was very liberating for me because I, I had set the goal for myself and to actually have achieved it. That was very liberating. But of course there were many other therapeutic moments in the lead up to that grand gesture. Um, What I find on a day-to-day basis that is very rewarding for me as, you know, as a a woman that's very, I suppose, open-minded and liberal, I'm a mom as well of many. I quite like the fact that my title is gender neutral. Uh, South Africa tends to be in current times still very much entrenched in patriarchy. So I love the fact that when you go somewhere and somebody helps you and they have to fill in a form and they go, oh, are you miss or missus? And I go, well, actually, neither of the two options that you presented to me. <laughs> so I love that. It's very, it's a, it's, 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 it's quite a current reminder of how liberating it can be to be, you know, to be different, I suppose. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. And lastly, as we close out today's conversation, can you share a few words of inspiration or or motivation that you'd like to pass on to women and girls who are listening to us? Absolutely. So um, I believe not coincidental that we're having this conversation in the first month of the year. Uh, From my very rudimentary um, understanding of Latin is that January in Latin is sounds something like Yanuai or something like that. And it really just is a play on the opportunity to say it opens the door, you know, it opens the door to new beginnings and new seasons. So I want to say to ladies out there, don't be limited in your view around yourself. You know, you are very rich in the context that you represent, but you are also an individual despite that context. So let your context shape and shade you, but also turn up the volume of your individual voice in all of that. Wonderful message, that's that's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Lizelle Devee, who is a clinical psychologist in private practice. <laughs>